This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Thank you, everybody, for joining us from around the world. I'm Jesse Hagopian. I'm a high school ethnic studies and English language arts teacher here in Seattle. And I'm the editor of the book, More Than a Score, The New Uprising Against High Stakes Testing, and the co-editor of the book, Teaching for Black Lives. And I'm hosting today's conversation, Say Her Name, Charlena Lyles, Police Murder, and the New Uprising for Black Lives. And so now it's my pleasure to introduce our program and our speakers with you all today. And I think that the mass uprising in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd uh, and this uprising that swept the nation and, and really around the world has created bold new possibilities for the Black Lives Matter movement. And really bold initiatives are being taken around the country to defund, disarm, dismantle policing, to make huge transformations uh, of our society. But as the African-American Policy Forum raised by launching the hashtag Say Her Name, much of the focus of police violence has been given to the killing of black men and black women and transgender people have not really received the same attention. And the recent murder of Breonna Taylor, the 26-year-old African-American emergency medical technician, she was fatally shot in Louisville Metro by a Louisville Metro Police Department. Um, right, that brought more attention, but but still, I think that uh, there's a huge discrepancy. And another name that I hope everybody knows is Charlena Lyles, because on June 18th, 2017, two Seattle police officers entered the apartment of Charlena Lyles, and the police had been called by Charlena herself. She believed someone was breaking into her home. And within minutes of those officers entering her own apartment, the officers shot her down in a hail of seven bullets with at least three of them in the back. And the officers alleged they had to use lethal force because Charlena had a little paring knife. And she was pregnant at the time and she was killed in front of three of her four children. So we need to make a transformation of society. And with me today are some of my dearest friends and comrades in the struggle to talk about winning justice for Charlena and her family and how her story connects to this new uprising for black lives that we're seeing in the streets today. We have with us Katrina Johnson, who works for the Public Defenders Association as a project manager diverting people out of the criminal legal system into community-based resources instead of jail and prosecution. And Katrina 
uh, became a social justice activist and advocate and spokesperson for her family after Charlena Lyles uh, was murdered. Katrina is the cousin of Charlena. And Katrina works with other families who have lost loved ones to the lethal force of police. Also with us today is Nikita Oliver, a Seattle-based creative community organizer, abolitionist, educator, and attorney. Nikita is the co-executive director of Creative Justice, the arts-based alternative to incarceration and and healing engaged youth-led community-based program. She's also known around these parts as the people's mayor. Michael Bennett is a three-time Pro Bowler with us here today, Pro Bowl MVP, Super Bowl champion. He's gained international recognition for his public support for the Black Lives Matter movement, but not just that, his support for women's rights movements and other social justice issues. And he's the author of the book, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable with Dave Zirin. So welcome, everybody. I appreciate you all being here today. I'm excited for this this conversation, for sure. And uh, I wanted to to start off by just saying, I I think the last time we were all together was that that summer right after Charlena was killed, um, when Michael helped us organize a rally in Judkins Park here in Seattle. Um, I think we were all there, if I'm not mistaken, and um, came together or maybe at one of the the anniversary events of her death as well. I think we were all together as well. Um, And I feel like a lot has changed since we were all together, Um, but a lot has stayed the same as well. Like, you know, what stayed the same is our schools are still underfunded. People are still homeless in our communities. Uh, The police are still killing us in the streets. But... Wow. What a what an incredible uprising that's occurring right now. What a difference. uh, What a different moment we're in with a every day, a new mass march um, going by my house. (laughs) Um, There's a new widespread discussion about major reforms or abolition of the police. And here in Seattle, we have the Chaz or the CHOP uh, area. Um, we're passing resolutions to get police out of schools. Nikita and I were at a children's march this weekend where the youth led thousands of people in the streets and issued their demands to the city. That was uh, a powerful moment. But I wanted to start with, with Katrina and just ask you, as we approach the third anniversary of your cousin's death of Charlena's uh, murder on Thursday, June 18th, I just wanted to begin by asking you how you're doing and how her kids are doing. Hey, Jesse, glad to be here. Um, I'm doing. I mean, that's about as good as it gets right now. Um, trying to plan the uh, vigil for my cousin. And in light of all the things that have been going on all across the nation, it's hard to just keep going sometimes. But, you know, you have to. Um, so I'm kind of just doing right now. Um, my cousin's kids are good. 
um, as far as they can be. I mean, they don't have a mom anymore. Right. Um, but I think they are in a good living situation. They're being cared for properly. Um, and I mean, that's all I can ask for in these times. Right on. Right on. I know it's hard to just get up some days, especially as the anniversary approaches. So I really appreciate you being here and all the work you've done to continue this fight over the years. Um, it helps keep me going. And so it's personally very meaningful. I was just hoping you could talk more about the vigil that's planned for Thursday and, um, and about all, and also I know you're doing a lot to bring folks in to support it. Yeah. So the vigil is on Thursday, um, 6 PM at Magnuson park. It'll be in the field right across from Brettler uh, place where she was murdered. Um, and you know, there's a network of families all across the nation. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that I felt like supported. Um, and sometimes, you know, community doesn't always support. I mean, I got, you know, Nikita and other folks, but, um, so I just wanted to make sure that my family was just like wrapped in love. And so my warrior brothers and sisters, other families, I just said, could you guys come out here? And I didn't know that I was going to get the response that I got, but we have like 15, 16 families coming out here from all across the nation, from India Kager's uh, mom, Gina Best, till, um, I mean, uh, Sandra Bland's sister, Shantae Needham, um, just all sorts of kinds of folks. Um, and I'm really appreciative to have them come into town and, and, and help uh, be there for my family during these times. Wow, that, that sounds healing just to bring folks together. I know I've been wanting to actually craft some, some curriculum and lesson plans for teachers about the history of families uh, who are victims of police violence organizing for, the, for justice for their own families. So that's something we should be in touch about. Um, but I wanted to ask, I wanted to, right on, I wanted to ask Michael, um, you know, it's really been amazing to see pro athletes, especially recently, begin to use their platforms uh, to speak out about police violence. And, you know, what I've been moved about the way that you have approached this is not just speaking out or sending a tweet about how you feel about the next black person who was killed by a police officer, but but actually working with families. And um, I wonder if you could talk about um, your relationship with Katrina and, and the struggle for justice for Charlena Lyles and, um, and that rally that we organized and your, your thoughts about this anniversary. Um, I think if you look at like who we are as black men and like who we are as black people and, and our black women, how important it is to us for us, not in a, a sexist way, but to protect them in a way that um, that they feel safe. And also that when something tragic happens to them, the way that black women get behind black men when something tragic happens to them, usually it's the first, it's the black woman who steps up. You can look in his, historical context. You can look now. If you look at most things that are happening on TV, it's really black women who are standing up 
on the fist and standing up on the ground, you know, risking not only risking their lives, but also they're risking their motherhood. They have kids, they're taking care of their families and they're still doing what they need to do to um, continuously make steps into progression for our, our people and our culture and our and the safety of their of their children. But I feel like it's black men, it's important that with something that's happened to Breonna Taylor or Charlene allows the importance of us bringing that up. If you listen to even music, if you listen to rap music and people talking about police violence and brutality of African-American people, is they're going to usually use a line about uh, Trayvon Martin or they're going to use a line about Sandra, I mean, they're using a line about Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, but it's not too many, too much often in culture that would bring up the violence against our women mm. and how and how deeply rooted that is in our culture that our women have been um, raped. They have been, you know, they've just been so, there's been so many things that's happened in the history of, of our culture and has happened to our women that particularly is being a, a, a son of a black woman, the importance of bringing up the issues that are happening to them, right? The father of black daughters, the, the brother of a black sister, like the continuation of the importance of standing up on and standing up for them the way that they stand up for us. If you look at the, the situation, I believe it was in Dallas and the police pulled out in front of this man and they had a gun and they was about to shoot him in his front yard. But it was his grandmother walking on her cane that had the power of God, but also had the power of her being a woman. She, at that moment, she was, she had her motherly things and she was risking everything to see the safety of her child. And I think when we look at the, um, we look at what's happened to Charlene Lyles, uh, Sandra Bland, um, Breonna Taylor, we, we see our women, we see our women who, a system that protects white women protects their women at the highest level that they could call the police and the police will show up and try to justify whatever they need justify and to feel protected. But for some reason, our women don't get the same respect from the system that is supposed to be protecting us. The UT, the usual call to police to say that as a woman calling the police saying that I feel that um, somebody's breaking to my house. Usually a, as a male, you, as a cop, you're supposed to be like, okay, I'm coming in. We're going to do this. Well, how's your kids? Are you safe? But as a black woman, we they we were still seen as a threat to the fabric of society. Why? Because the black mother is is the is the womb to another to the birth of more black children. So I feel like there's a system that is trying to, to suppress our women in a way because without the woman, there is no birth of, of of us, right? And I feel like that's how important it is for us because the world is a woman is so important not only but they because they they started the world um the world goes through them the womb of the world comes to them jesus was born by a woman so it's it's important jesus could have been born any type of way but he was born through a woman's womb and it's the importance of protecting of, of protecting that and them protecting us in the way that they have i feel like as a duty and an obligation to stand up on the circumstances and the things that have happened to uh, our women and particularly being in Seattle and being um, hearing about Charlene and being around um, Katrina and the family, it's just one of those things that we are not, we then we connect on a human level, right? We connect in with pain. I mean, there's anger and sadness is connected in a, such a unique way, right? You have to have anger. Sometimes you have anger that started from sadness and sadness kind of leads to anger in certain situations. And there's a certain amount of anger that's connected to these situations that also touches our heart 
in a way that compels us to have sadness, to want to do more. But anger is what drives us to change, make change. And I think through these situations is why there's so much uproar in America right now, because at what moment do you does our sadness fall on fall on? empty ears, you know, where at one moment do we have to be angry? And I feel like right now we're tired of living in a world where our kids aren't protected, where our women isn't protected, where our school system isn't protected, where, where everything in our society that's supposed to be protected and is given to us by God is seen to be controlled and oppressed by a certain person or a certain people or a certain system that's becoming so so unconscious to our needs and so unconscious to the development of our children and our and our culture that sometimes it just seems overwhelming, you know? And, and yeah. for me, I'm connected to that from a human level. And I think as an athlete, we we are put taking ourselves out of the situation of, I feel like in the black community, there's so many titles that's trying to divide us from being united as one, right? There's you're an actor, you're a dancer, you're a singer, you're a musician, and there's so many of these things start to be to to create create these class systems that slowly push us away from our true identity. And my true identity, yeah, I am an athlete, yeah, I'm a musician, yeah, I'm this, but the core of all of it, the the makeup of me is is black. I'm an African American man. My sister's an African African American woman. My, everybody around me. So at the same time, there's no disconnect, and I think. These systems are slowly trying to disconnect us from our platforms and disconnect us from our voices. So once we become silent to our to the masses, if they could suppress people who have it all, then it would be so much easier to suppress people who don't even have a voice. Mm. Right on. Thank you so much, Michael. I just was thinking also, I, I just saw that video you're referencing of that great grandmother who stands in front of the cop and defends her grandson. and. I feel like that image right there for me, maybe more than anything, like really helped me understand why people have had enough and why this this movement is erupting into the streets, because there's been thousands and millions of those events across this country. And I wanted to ask Nikita about uh, this uprising we're experiencing right now. Uh, it's been described by The Washington Post as the broadest movement in U.S. history that it says uh, they wrote people have held protests in all 50 states, including Washington, D.C., including hundreds of smaller, lesser known towns and cities that have not been in the spotlight in previous national protests. So I'm hoping you can help us understand why this moment now? What are the factors that are driving this? I mean, obviously, the horrific video of George Floyd was a detonator, but I think, you know, there's more to it. And also, um, what are the demands that uh, people are talking about in in the movement and where, where do we need to go towards uh, developing these demands? Yeah, thanks, Jesse. And uh, so I wanna first start by acknowledging that it's Pride Month and acknowledging that Stonewall was a riot that was addressing police brutality. It was led by uh, Black and Latinx trans women. And I think in that notion, also want to call to the forefront, you know, Rhea Milton, Dominique Fells, Tony McDade, all people who have either lost their lives in the last week uh, fighting police brutality or have been murdered by police. And those are Black trans people. And so appreciate 
the centering and acknowledgement that often those those murders, those deaths do not get the same amplification. And so if we're going to really get justice, we have to center those folks in our work. Um, I think that we are at a really dynamic moment, uh, not much different than the 1968 Poor People's Movement, when we saw uh, the fight for economic justice intersect with the fight for racial justice. Uh, you know, COVID has exasperated the pre-existing conditions of injustice that we uh, that we already knew existed, and has exasperated the uh, pre-existing condition of economic inequality. And so we're seeing lots of communities, not just the black community, but lots of communities suffering under the thumb of racialized capitalism. And the gruesome murder of George Floyd, you know, an officer who for nine minutes placed his knee on uh, Mr. Floyd's neck while he cried out for his mother, knowing he was being filmed while other officers stood around and watched and did nothing to, to intervene, I think sparked something that was already lying beneath the surface as we see the economic justice movement meet the racial justice movement. Uh, we are seeing a lot of people converging in the streets and it is, it has created um, a, a movement that I don't think in terms of like the black lives matter uprising as a part of the black liberation movement that we have not seen. I was in the streets in 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016. And I think our largest March was maybe 1200 people in Seattle. We're seeing marches as big as 60,000 right now. And it's because I think many people are becoming awake to not just police brutality, but the overall oppressive system and injustice that that really does affect many of our lives and permeate so many of the systems we have to interact with, from education to social services to uh, housing um, and so people are feeling moved into the streets uh, as a part of this movement. And so what has been uh, beauty from ashes and quite literally in Minneapolis, where they are now talking about disbanding their police force, uh, the only city that I know of that actually burnt down a police precinct, they are having the discussion of actually dismantling uh, the police, an acknowledgement that policing in the United States is inherently racist and inherently white supremacist. We're seeing national demands and local demands of defund the police, invest in community-based public health and public safety, and in many places, free the protesters, an acknowledgement that just because, you know, people loot or they break windows or set fires, that's no reason for us to be in jail when we are fighting against a system that has historically and presently perpetrated violence, looting, setting fires, breaking windows upon black peoples, brown peoples, native peoples for an incredibly long time. And so, um, I think what is dynamic about this moment is you are seeing tens of thousands of people being radicalized and politicized, not just in the United States on Turtle Island, but around the world where people are literally going to U.S. embassies and setting fires and breaking windows and chanting Black Lives Matter because they're realizing there is this this global awakening that we cannot tolerate anti-blackness or racial injustice, not locally on Turtle Island and certainly not globally. Right on. Thank you, Nikita. It's just amazing to see this movement develop not only the numbers of people in the streets that you're talking about that is so different, but but also the quality of, of it. 
people deepening their politics and asking for more and more radical demands to get at the root of the problems that, that we're facing. And I appreciate you putting this in the context of pride and the riot and also in the context of capitalism and an economic system that's about uh, profiting off of our lives for a wealthy parasitical minority. Um, and just to that, I, I hope we could all just talk about the challenges um, with us right now of, of building a movement that's intersectional, right? That fights to make all Black Lives Matter. So I'm glad that you raised, uh, you know, the recent killings of, of Black trans folks like Tony McDade, um, that we need to be able to to uplift in this struggle and center as well, right? And we need to be able to talk about making all Black Lives Matter means making queer and trans lives matter. It means uh, being in solidarity with other social movements, right? How do we connect Black Lives Matter with the struggle for immigrant rights um, and getting these kids out of cages on the border, right? Um, the struggle against sexual assault in this country and uh, the Me Too movement, social movements to redistribute wealth. Um, so what are the prospects do y'all think about building this kind of an intersectional movement uh, today? Do you want to start off? Nikita, I don't know if you want to... Um, that's a really that's a really complicated question. That's like so uh, multifaceted because there's like so many different. I don't know. I feel like there's so many different avenues. I still think it's trying to conquer, trying to get. I think everything is kind of attached together in a certain way, and I think um, get now that we are able to, like Nikita said, you know, go from twelve hundred to six hundred thousand. I mean, to sixty thousand, and we're looking at all across the world. I think. The black the Black Lives Matter movement is like a it's 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 a it's a personification of how everybody's feeling around the world because I think it goes back to what Nikita is saying about the the war on poverty right because then you look at it this we're living in this capitalistic um, country and, and in the world and when we live in a capitalistic mindset it's like. Everything, every luxury we get in, there's a suffering for somebody else. And I think we're starting to realize the circle that, that we've been pulling on for a long time. Like we pull in the iPhone, we love the iPhone, but then when we look back at where the, the, the person who's holding on to the iPhone in the behind is a migrant worker, somebody who suffered from something. And I think now we're starting to really put the pieces together. And I think as we slowly start to unravel the system that we see that is a uh, that's been kind of oppressing us and see how we can keep moving forward. I think, I think the connections are starting to really come together slowly, but for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I, I consider myself a student of history. And when I look at the poor people's movement and what was happening in 1968, you saw many civil rights leaders, uh, like MLK, but also Malcolm X, folks from Black Panther Party as we moved into the 1970s, speaking out against the war machine, speaking out against capitalism, um, speaking about racial injustice. And it was the intersection of these movements that brought so many people to the table to feel motivated, to feel like they had a part in toppling the oppressive system. Um, I think of uh, where we're at right now um, as an abolitionist, 
you know, what is our vision for the future? We, we, we have to dismantle, obviously, the oppressive system, but we have to be actively building the system we, we want. And that's not just about stopping police brutality. This is where I struggle sometimes with some of the demands I hear come out. Obviously, we want to see police held accountable. And the only way we know how to hold police accountable right now is prosecution. Um, that's not restorative, though. You know, as a practitioner of restorative justice and transformative justice, that does not actually heal the hurt. It, it also does not stop the harm. So, you know, abolition requires us to have a vision for the future. And that's the, that's not just about moving beyond police. That's not just about moving beyond prisons. It's about all the factors that have contributed to a pipeline that move people into spaces where they are forced to have um, encounters with an oppressive police force and the criminal punishment system, which requires us to think about you know, wealth redistribution, housing affordability, health care for all, uh, healthy food, access to education and employment. And so, you know, for me, the Black Lives Matter movement right now is calling out issues around uh, police brutality. But when we talk about defunding the police, the next question is, what are we investing in that actually creates public health and public safety for all? I mean, we've been investing in a system of public health and public safety, but only for white and wealthy folks, only for people who own property, only for folks who are invested and comfortable within this racialized capitalist system. So if we're going to get to a place where we do effectively stop police brutality, where we do dismantle the criminal punishment system in the Department of Corrections and really really do achieve a world where restorative justice and transformative justice are centered in the ways that we address harm and how we care for each other, we also have to deal with these other factors like housing, education, healthcare that have been created in an inequitable way to force people into a system that exploits them. I mean, the system we have requires that we have some poor people, that we have uh, workers that are exploited by corporations and industry. And so it's essential for the Black Lives Matter movement, for the Black Liberation Movement as a whole, for the American Indian movement, for Native sovereignty, for labor movements, uh, for movements to smash patriarchy, that we actually begin to find the, the intersections because uh, it is the pillars of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy that actually is oppressing us all um, and creating a world where, where we have marginalized and disenfranchised communities that then you use an oppressive force like the police to control right, to keep in a particular place. So if we don't figure out how to get our movements to align, we're going to have a hard time toppling the system. And for me, as an abolitionist, this is not just about ending police brutality. It is about a vision of a world beyond police, beyond prisons, beyond inequity. And that requires an alignment of our movements with some shared goals and shared visions of sharing resources of taking care of each other, of compassion and care and not cages. Um, and I think that is the beauty of this moment. As you said earlier, we are actually seeing people becoming radicalized to the point that they want to see that vision. And a lot of folks are self-educating. They're watching streams like this one. They're they're accessing information online. They're, they're educating themselves through the wealth of knowledge that's out there. And it, it really is a beautiful thing. And you know what, I, you, the, uh, I actually agree with you too, Nikita, because I think there's so many um, like levels to freedom, and I think like I'm not. I know Jesse does so much work around education reform, and I think that's another thing that's really 
has been kind of missed on um, when we're talking about the freedom because education that kind of gives our kids the opportunity to have exactly what they want in this world. And when you look at this, the systems around America, my mother's a teacher and she's, we're constantly talking about the amount of testing. I know that Jesse, you, use it, you just got the essay, the testing standards switched over and, and, and Washington University and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I've just but, got rid of standardized, got rid of the SAT requirement after years yeah. of our struggles. Yeah, and it's like we're talking about the judicial system. That's like one way of keeping us down. The healthcare system. We, there's so many different systems there are. Are we have we are fighting right now that it requires us to unite because it's so much big. It's such a big way to really shake that system. And I really think you are right on, Nikita. I would just like to say I think that COVID showed most people that we need to love on our teachers and we need to pay them more and we need to invest more into our, um, into our schooling, um, for, for our young people. Um, cause it was a struggle for most people to try to, um, you know, be teachers, uh, during this time. So, I mean, just as much as everybody's out here, if they don't want to pay the teachers, we need to be out there for them as well. But I also, you know, because there's so many different aspects to this, I mean, I just want the most directly impacted folks to be on the front lines. You know what I mean? I mean, because it is their movement. I mean, I often say to people, I, welcome. I'm glad you're finally here for the fight because some of us have already been fighting for a while um, and we've been on the front lines and we're glad to have some help now. I'm glad you finally have woken up and seen that this is not right. Um, so for me, it's just like centering the most impacted people and pushing their agenda. It would it would suck if it got hijacked for somebody else's personal gains. And that's, you know, a lot of people want like proximity to power or they want to um, make it about them. And it's it's not about any one group of people. It's about all people at the end of the day, you know, and yes, we are centering black lives because until black lives matter, all lives can't possibly matter. Right. And then you start to think about, you know, our Palestinian brothers and sisters and things like that, you know, um, who think they're like, OK, if black lives can't matter. We are way underneath them. Right. Um, so I think that all those things come into play. And I think that as long as we show unity, we're not always going to agree, but we can agree to disagree and still move forward. But as long as we center the most impacted, I think that we can come out of this um, with a with a better tomorrow for our kids. No doubt. Wow. What a rich discussion, y'all. I really appreciate that. Like um, how we bring these different movements together, why why we're all in it together. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about Occupy and like the power that that uh, movement had to finally shine a light on the massive wealth inequality that existed. And the slogan, we're the 99% was powerful. But the problem with it, though, was that within the 99%, there are so many divisions. You know, we got people fearing Muslims and uh, agreeing with U.S. foreign policy of bombing, spending billions to bomb people all over the world. Right. And with within the 99%, we got we got uh, Islamophobes and we got xenophobes, right, and all kinds of um, racist divisions within us, right? And so I'm, if we're not able to figure out how to overcome those divisions, we won't have the type of unity that I think it'll take to make the kind of transformations that 
that you all are talking about, right? And so that's why this is so so critical right now. And I just wanted to say also, Nikita, I appreciate you bringing up the the Poor People's Campaign and that the some historical perspective on some things that we can look back to as models for beginning to think through how we rebuild mass social movements right now. Because one of the things I'm focused on is also getting unions involved, right? And Martin Luther King went down to Memphis. His last struggle before he was assassinated was bringing the Poor People's Campaign to support the black sanitation workers who were on strike down there, right? And it was about seeing how do we bring the the movement that's in the streets against racism together with the power of organized labor, right? But we can shut down sectors of the economy. Imagine if when uh, George Floyd was killed, like there was a mass general strikes around the country. Now, now they're really worried about the the direction. And so I think we could bring together those movements is another another part. And you yeah. know what's crazy in bringing that up, you know, in New Orleans, it you know, you said some things have changed and a lot hasn't changed. In New Orleans, you actually have sanitation workers fighting for the exact same things at this moment in history as they were fighting for in 1968 in Memphis, right? And to see the the quote unquote I am a man campaign need to be brought back well over 50 years later um, is should force us to ask some questions. I think another element that we have to grapple with, especially when we think about Occupy or WTO, is um, many movements that have come before have failed to address anti-Blackness and anti-Indigeneity within those movements, you know, an unwillingness to grapple with the fact that Native peoples were here first, uh, and we have failed to follow the ways to treat the earth, which is why we're dealing with so many of the issues that we're dealing with, and to understand that anti-Blackness in any movement is going to prevent our ability to actually move towards liberation. Because, you know, we say Black Lives Matter because so as long as Black folks are not free, nobody's really going to be able to be free because the system we live in is literally built upon denying Indigenous people their right to the land and denying Black folks our right to our bodies and our labor. So unless we dismantle those things in any movement that we have, that movement's going to collapse underneath racialized capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy. And it's going to lend itself to things like xenophobia, Islamophobia, you know, all the things that you brought up. And so when we think about the work we're doing right now, this is why history is so important. It's not just about knowing what worked in history. It's also understanding the places in which our elders might have missed some parts of the analysis um, and why we're still struggling to dismantle some of these systems and we're seeing sanitation workers in New Orleans fighting the same fight that they were in Memphis in 1968. That's right. Thank, thank you. I wanted to um, also ask Katrina about the work that she's doing um, because I know you're traveling around the country and helping to organize uh, with mothers of the movement and other families that have been impacted by police violence. Can you talk about that work and other black women that you've worked with in this struggle and the importance of the Say Her Name campaign. And if there's other women who've been killed by police that we should uplift uh, their names and their family. There's so many women that have been killed by police. Um, you know, um, you know, even more recent, a Tatiana Jefferson, Rakia Boyd, 
Chantel Davis. I mean, you know, it's endless, right? Um, they just aren't as high profile for some reason as, you know, our black men. Um, for me, what I do is, um, it's me and a group of folks, um, we're families united for justice, um, through force trajectory project. We just go around supporting families, um, on the ground. Cause when these things happen and it's not a high profile case, families don't really know what to do. Um, and you know, you have like the, the people that want to prey upon families in their time of pain and they want to pimp their pain, so to speak. Um, you know, we want to try to touch them and just offer our love and support to them and help them, you know, build their toolkit so that they can fight this legal system to try to get, you know, justice for their loved one. Um, and that's what we do. Um, and we just recently just went to Las Vegas and uplifted the Las Vegas, um, families, um, who are fighting for justice, um, at the hands of Las Vegas police department, um, who have killed numerous folks, you know, even Mike had a run in with them. Um, and so, um, that's what I do all over the nation and just speaking, you know, uh, power and truth, to people um, and just, you know, loving on people, right? Um, when you become part of this family that nobody wants to be in, sometimes it feels good to be around family because if I decide I want to cry, they're not going to ask me why. They already know why, right? Um, and you just carry this load and you only feel safe releasing it around people that you know care about your tears, right? Um, and other people, they just want to exploit that. And I think that that's the comfort of being with families. Um, and that's why um, they're they're coming to Seattle to support us. And um, I just think it's great um, that we're able to do that. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without Mike and our friendship. Um, and I just like to say, like, when I first met him and I'm a big football fan, Something when I first met that. him, um, am I OK? Yeah, you're talking about Michael Bennett. Yeah, when I first met him, you know, I didn't see Michael Bennett, the professional football player. It was just a black man that was in pain, just like I was in pain and just loving on my family. Um, and through that developed a friendship and, you know, um, and it, 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 it's important to build those friendships because we're just people at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody might got a little bit more zeros in their bank account than me. You know what I mean? But we're just people at the end of the day. And for him to, you know, fly families in from all over the country is a beautiful thing so that we can be together and uplift my cousin and other families here in Washington state who are still in the trenches fighting for justice at this time. Yeah, no doubt. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the work you've been doing. I mean, you, you think about this uprising right now. There's been different detonators and whatnot, but it's like Nikita was talking about the bin marching in 2011, 2012, 2013. It's the organizing, uh, laying the basis for this that has changed communities all over this country. So you flying all over the country and the world to get this message out um, is part of why this is happening. So I really appreciate you. And um, I wanted to ask Nikita about the work you do with Creative Justice. Uh, in Seattle and maybe talk in more detail about what restorative justice is and how we could think about public safety without police. Yeah, so creative justice is a, 
partners with young people that are working to liberate themselves from the juvenile criminal punishment system. Um, it is arts-based, it is healing engaged. Uh, we strive to recognize that there are so many factors that go into why a young person might find themselves uh, navigating the criminal punishment system and acknowledge, more importantly, the broader systemic things that often put young people in that situation and then use art uh, as a platform for them to be able to tell their story, speak truth to power, be a part of creating policy and transforming that system. And I have to give nod to the No New Youth Jail movement. Creative Justice was directly birthed out of that. No New Youth Jail is a movement here in Seattle King County that started in 2012 when our county voted to invest $180 million in a new youth jail, despite the fact that um, young people being forced into the criminal punishment system, juvenile crime was actually going down. And so ultimately our county spent somewhere around $233 million building a facility that as of Thursday, there were only 28 youth in. Uh, and so our belief is why would we continue to invest one in a system we know we don't need and two in a system we know does not work. The criminal punishment system generally, but especially as it pertains to young people, does not help our communities be safer. It does not really lead to accountability. And it certainly does not undo the things that put young people um, in challenging situations that they might find themselves in the criminal punishment system. And so our goal through creative justice is to do just what Katrina was talking about earlier, is to see those who have the experience of the injustice get as close to proximity to power and the ability to effectuate the solutions that they know need to happen um, to get them to the position where they can make those changes. And art is an incredibly powerful apparatus for that. I started out my work as a, as a spoken word artist, telling stories and spitting analysis in ways that people can receive with their hearts and then hopefully eventually process with their brains. Our goal is to pay young people, train young people, partner with young people to see art become the means by which we create a cultural shift and the way that we think about accountability and the way that we think about justice. If justice is not restorative, then it's not just because yeah. it hasn't it hasn't healed the harm. It hasn't set anything right. The, the goal of justice is to set something right. And so um, the other side of that is acknowledging, especially for black native uh, POC youth, that the system has had it out for them from jump, creating communities that are economically disenfranchised or are oppressed by over-policing and creating situations in which those young people are forced through the school to prison pipeline into the criminal punishment system. So we also carry that systems analysis of knowing that we need Need to be partnering with young folks and their families in our community to dismantle that system and build the restorative system. So, uh, you know, it is beautiful work. It has emerged out of a movement uh, for through, from the No New Youth Jail campaign, and it it directly is because of grassroots organizing that programs like Creative Justice, Community Passageways, Choose One Eighty. Corner greeters. I mean, I could go down the list of programs in Seattle, King County that have risen to the surface to meet the need of restorative justice and say, we don't need a youth jail. We don't need prosecution. We need programs that heal and address the, the real root causes of harm uh, that push people into that system. No doubt. Oh, Nikita. No, I appreciate that. I need you to do some spoken word for my, uh, my album that I'm putting out at the, at the end of the song. All right, I got you. Done. The whole world is solid. 
I might put you at the beginning. Actually, I'm 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 dead serious. I'm dead I'm, serious. I'm down. I'm really excited about it. Trip to Mike's house. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this collaboration going, y'all, on a new level. Uh, yeah, I I find that real interesting too. What you're talking about because I I feel like in Seattle, being in Seattle for so long, I feel like there's such a disconnect from what's happening in the racial sector of Seattle and the racism that Seattle has been the history of it. And I think you look at, like you said, if you look at the indigenous people who they're first and the experiences that they have uh, lived in and what African-American people have lived in and their spaces there, I think white America and Seattle, they don't connect to that for some reason. They really think that Seattle is like a utopia. There is no racism. There is no this, there is no that. But then you look at the homeless rate. You look at the, the the police violence. You look at the education system. The between um, Rainier Valley into Bellevue, the distance between right. schools and the education and the amount of money that's put into these different school systems. I really think Seattle needs to wake up. And it's like even with COVID nineteen and all these different things, you see the racial disparities in Seattle. But I always felt that like even the people just didn't really think that. I mean, do you feel that way, Jesse? Did you kind of feel like there's like a disconnect between what's really happening in Seattle and what the actuality of what people are thinking? Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. Like, there's this idea that Seattle's this liberal, progressive mecca and, you know, we, race, we've eliminated racism. But, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter at school movement was birthed in Seattle because a white supremacist threatened to blow up John Muir Elementary School for the audacity of those teachers to go to school wearing a shirt that said Black Lives Matter, right? And so we, yeah, I mean, Seattle's got a long way to go um, in many in many ways, but we're, you know, we're also proud that we're helping to, to lead social struggles here, man. Like, like you were there that first year, Michael, um, when we, when we um, we passed a resolution against um, that bomb threat to John Muir, and we said if we really stand in solidarity with with the, that school, we'll all go to school wearing shirts that say Black Lives Matter. And then uh, we we organized three thousand out of the five thousand teachers in Seattle to to wear those shirts. And not only that, but many to teach lessons about institutional racism and the great contributions of Black folks to this country. And then, Michael, you showing up at the rally um, that we had in the evening that was standing room only, that made a huge difference to our community, gave us a lot of confidence that, that we could continue to struggle in the right in the right direction. You know what I mean? Um, and a big part of that movement has been to exactly what Nikita was talking about, ending the youth jail. I mean, it's only a few blocks from my, from the school I teach at. And these kids know this system readying them to push them into that building uh, while class sizes grow, right? While, um, you know, we only have four counselors for 2,000 students, you know, so absolutely we need major uh, investment. We I have 150 homeless kids at Garfield High School, right? Here in the shadow of Amazon, Microsoft, Boeing, Starbucks. I mean, it's obscene how much wealth there is here. And that at the same time, we got kids uh, sleeping on the streets. So uh, I mean, not, to, to bring it back to Charlena, not to mention a city that will say the name of George Floyd and so many other folks murdered by the police. And at no point in the last 
since May 30th, when when protesting or May 29th, when protesting really started to pop off in Seattle, has the mayor or the police chief in any of the press conferences acknowledged the families or the people that have been murdered by the Seattle Police Department. And in fact, has said in her most recent press conferences, she's not going to defund the police. So when people call Seattle this progressive bastion, I find it actually offensive, you know, like as as a black organizer who has to struggle with other black organizers to even get to the table um, and then go places nationally. And people are like, oh, Seattle's so progressive uh, while there's 14000 people sleeping outside while our mayor thwarts a big business tax while one of the the businesses making the most money during this global pandemic um, is is housed here. Uh, it, it really is a city that people need to wake up and understand that that racism, the murders of black people, uh, the failure to address inequities in our school system exists here as much as they do anywhere else. You know, folks will be like, well, we're not the worst state, but why would you why would you compare yourself to the state in the worst position? Like, why aren't we comparing ourselves to the vision? And I think I will be able to say Seattle mm-hmm. King County is is progressive when we start making real actionable strides towards the vision of equality as opposed to just not being the worst. Right. And that's, inter- that's interesting that you brought that up, too, because, I mean, I literally text Jesse was like, it makes me so mad that that Seattle hasn't acknowledged um, Charlena. And I literally text him and was like, man, we need to do something because here's a memory of this and nobody's even bringing this to attention. There's a story of people that's happening right here in our city, but the Seahawks are marching about George Floyd when people, other it's, it's a weird combination because it's, it's like, you know, it's the, you know, it's steps to progression in it and happening, but still you connect it to this thing that needs to be brought back into the light so people can see. And I think the dishonest, truth about it's a lot easier to throw rocks at somebody else's house right but when you when you standing up on legs that aren't even stable how could you tell somebody how to be stable you know and i feel like seattle hasn't had the stability of his own sake to even reconcile with itself to look in the mirror and to acknowledge the pain and the hurt of these families and i think it's, it's really disgusting honestly I can't even say say I don't know what other word to say. I don't want to be rude, but it's disgusting to see that people will the city will try to use something else to hide away from what its own laundry. You know what I'm saying? And what it feel like there's no justification for what happened. There's not one justifi- justifiable thing for some the way that they can paint it or the picture of it, how it happened and what's happening in this city that I just think sometimes it's important that. And like you said, Seattle has all these important figures, not just in Seattle. You know, Jeff Bezos was one of the most important people in the whole world. Right. So it's like it's like if, if he has the voice to say something, it changes the whole trajectory of, of this conversation. So I, I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird. Yeah. I would just have to say I was, I'm not going to lie. I was pissed off when I heard about our police chief, Carmen Best, and the mayor talking about their, their siding with accountability and what happened in Minneapolis and all these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, um, hello, people are dying in your own backyard. I need you to address what's happening here before you start throwing shade of what's going on somewhere else, because there's a lot of people um, that have died on your watch 
including Charlena Lyles, but then you start thinking about Yosia Falatongo, uh, Eugene Nelson, you know, Giovanni Joseph McDade, and you, you start talking about more recently Sean Fuhrer, who was shot in his head with his baby in his arm. I mean, where where is, how are you going to be talking about accountability needs to happen somewhere else when you're not being accountable here? And I think people also, there's that other part, you know, because our police chief is a black woman and that's great. And I'm happy for her. Right. But at the same time, your badge, that blue line supersedes your blackness. Black people, black police officers kill people in community every day as well. And I can't get hung up on just because you're a black cop. Mm. That does not save me. And that does not save our community. Mm. No doubt. I appreciate you saying that for sure, Um, because it has been disgusting to see the way they they hide their their own culpability here in in seattle that's why i am proud of my union um the seattle education association we passed seven resolutions in support of black lives matter to try to get some heat um on the city right here Um, my resolution passed to defund the police overwhelmingly from the city's teachers we passed a resolution to get police out of schools and the superintendent just announced they they are going to remove them for the year. We're going to try to make that permanent. Um, and there is a resolution passed to get them out of the King County Labor Council as well. I mean, it just we need to understand that they're not part of the labor movement either. I mean, you know, police have assaulted so many different working people, especially BIPOC people. And the and the police guild works to make sure there's no accountability. You know, right. what I mean? like I was pepper sprayed in the face in 2015 at the Martin Luther King rally caught on video. Everybody knows I wasn't provoking anything. And those Seattle Police Union, the police guild worked to, to make sure there was no accountability for that officer. Right. And and so we're hoping that that struggle moves moves forward uh, as as well. You know, Jesse, and I think there's one big thing leading up to my cousin's vigil that a lot of people don't really understand that's happening is my family still doesn't even have answers as into what happened that day. You know, and we have the city who has filed a lawsuit against the county, which is preventing inquest and inquest reform from going forward. So not only my family, but like 20 something other families We are still just sitting there because the officers who killed my cousin, they have lawsuits against the county. You have Kent that has a lawsuit, Auburn. And, you know, the Auburn police, they have one police officer who's killed three people in nine years. He's a serial killer and he's still on the police force with 67 or 64 uses of force um, complaints. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. And that's why I'm like, if you're going to be out there and you're going to be on the front line and you're going to be fighting, I need for you to not only hold law enforcement accountable, but the mayors that uphold their bullshit Um, because the mayor is allowing for, you know, these entities to sue the the county, which is preventing families from getting answers. And, you know, what do we I mean, how many years are going to go by? without answers into what happened. Why did it happen? No doubt. What is really the truth about it? You know, and you you can't even move on, really. 
you're just like stuck and you're spinning and you know it's it's just a mess and until we start like pressuring them because you know politicians only respond to pressure you know nothing's going to change auburn kent um, federal way who killed a, a a paraplegic shot him 86 times you know i mean come on mm, I know. drop the lawsuits that's it that's it and i that's why i hope everybody in the in the seattle area will come out to the vigil on thursday um and i want to make sure you you give that information again before we're done um you sure will no doubt no doubt thank you um we have a, I have a couple more questions for y'all, and there's some questions coming in from folks on the live feed. Um, but Michael, I just wanted to ask you about the book you wrote as well, and how it relates to all this. Um, you know, you wrote the book "Things That Make White People Uncomfortable," and uh, what do you hope that they're uncomfortable with, and um, and what's really the message of that of the book? I think white people just need to be uncomfortable with the way that other people have been living. I mean, they've been so comfortable and privileged to live in a society where they don't see the uncomfortable conversations that we have to have a kid with our kids. Why do we have to have a conversation with our kids that's five years old about police violence? When when you're five years old, you're supposed to be dreaming about a unicorn. You're supposed to be dreaming about going to another planet. But when we five years old, we're telling our kids to watch out for the police. Don't play with toy guns this way. So I feel like White people have been able to live in this 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 bubble of even unconsciously or consciously or unintentional unintentional or intentional uh, of living in a society where they don't have to deal with the uncomfortable truths of being uh, a black person in America, the traumatic experience. And I wanted to want the people to dig deep into what what that is rooted into. Right, the racism is rooted in the fabric of America's history. If you look at the core issues and the underlying processes of America, if you look at the technology, technology has changed. The iPhone, the way that we will drive cars, but racism has stayed the same. It's, it's been the same in America for many years, and it continues to be this way. And it's our job, and, and it's their job and duty and obligation to acknowledge what's happening. I think a lot of times. White people don't want to look at the historical context of what people are saying. I mean, we quote Martin Luther King, but then we realize that Martin Luther King was killed because he was standing up for civil rights. We quote all these great people and we think about their struggles, but we don't connect their pain and their trauma to their experience of why they were taking those stances and why they were outliers is because society was made in a way that they had to be like that. All African-American superheroes are real people. We don't have super. We don't have X Men. We don't have Superman. Our superheroes are Malcolm X, uh, Angela Davis. These are people that really did these things. That were real things. That were that lived and hid and had to be these superheroes. Martin Luther King. You know these people. You know these are real. Our superheroes are are real people. And I think a lot of times um, the, we romanticize their uh, struggles and white people. Um, for sure, romanticize their experiences and their and their um and what they went through is to progression into society. And I think this book is to reminder, yeah, those people took those risks and we're still taking risks, but there has been the steps to progression are like a baby, a baby's foot, not really, but like an undeveloped fetus. The baby, the steps are not even really real feet yet. We're still nudging towards survival, nudging towards equality, nudging towards the safety and 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 um 
of our kids and our people. And I think this book was just a personification of me and the history, the history of what's happened in America. Like growing up in Texas and seeing the racial lines as a child and knowing that your race and your skin is as a defining factor to the levels of success that you can have in most genres in America. But just because I could play a sport, I, my skin now isn't seen as, as, uh, as is dangerous because it could be exploited, but still every day as an African-American, the are we are being exploited at, at such high levels and this book is to is a reminder of that and that's why i thought the police violence and police brutality story and, and why i wanted to not not make it just about black people i wanted people to see that this is a a war on humanity this is a war on people this is a system that's supposed to be protecting people but people are dying at a high level and at a high rate it's so it's so often and frequently that the society has become numb to death and it's becoming to a way that we see this so often that we just constantly just move forward. We look at Instagram and we scroll and we see death and just knowing this, that's a normal, that's a normal to our kids to have to experience that. And, and it's coming to a way that um, in this book, I wanted to remind them that these are, these are the steps that I've taken and the amount of risk that it takes for people to stand up. It's like, why should it feel it should, it, the risk to stand up for people is becoming so traumatic that we have to protect the people who are standing up because not only are they standing up for us, but then they're also standing up and they're dealing with their own trauma of just being a human being and have to, to manage and balance their own life while trying to balance the, the totality of what's happening to people who don't have a voice in America. Yeah, no doubt. What I appreciate, Michael, is that you didn't just write a book to talk about how you feel, but but you joined Athletes for Impact and are also organizing with other pro athletes um, around some some campaigns. We're running short on time, but I'm wondering if you could just say uh like what Athletes for Impact is and, and maybe one thing that you're doing. Athletes for Impact for us is for me and, and the connection to Athletes for Impact literally is the connection to not have one person be the voice of something, right? To have a collection of people like a, when Katrina's talking and Nikita's talking, it's about us coming together and unifying our voices to know that what Colin Kaepernick did wasn't, he wasn't, it was all of us, he's just stepping up for all of us and he shouldn't have to step out into the world by himself if he has a voice to be able to voice his opinion. And I think there's a lot of athletes around the world and around the country who have a voice but don't know how to really use it just quite yet. And I think Athletes for Impact is a tool for them to be connected to uh, issues that are happening in their community and being able to connect with organizers and to be able to use their platform and also being able to connect to get the information that they need to be able to have the rebuttal in society when they go out and speak about things that are happening around the world. And to think that athletes around the world, you know, to be able to be connected into one place and to have one vision and speak and hold brands and, and companies to a moral oath and a social oath is important because these brands we represent, they represent us in a way. And if we don't believe in the message and what they're doing, simply if we just getting paid and they're taking our likeness and likeness and doing things that are unfathomable to the communities, 
how, who are we? You know what I'm saying? We're literally standing up on the shoulders of our ancestors every day, those athletes who fought for equality. And now in this generation, the platform and the stakes are at the highest level. Before people weren't listening, you know, at, at the level that they're listening to now, if we look at LeBron James, 100 million followers. 100 million, that's more than most countries in the world. Most countries don't have 100 million people in them. And New Zealand only has 5 million. Other countries have 10 million, 20 million. Here's a man who has 100 million followers. And now we put that collectively, we probably have the equivalent amount of followers as the amount of people on the planet. You know, and and so it's important with that type of power, what do we do with that? Is it, it do we sell another Nike shoe? Do we sell another ad? Or do we bring light on issues and bring forth the people who are struggling and bring that together? And I think athletes for impact is the um is 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 that. And I think it's another tool for uh, young athletes growing up to be able to find a place. I consider it the Red Cross for athletes. Uh-huh. Hopefully, even better than that. I've seen I've seen some studies yeah, about Red Cross. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. But um, but let me just say this: we we we're coming up on just a few minutes left, and we're getting some questions in. So I wanted to throw a couple questions out from from the live feed on YouTube. Um, Gabriella said, "Hi, Katrina. I contacted Durkin and Dow Constantine regarded the law regarding the lawsuits. Who else can we put pressure on to get?" the lawsuits dropped. You got to put pressure on the Kent mayor, the Auburn mayors, um, Jenny Durkin, after I came out, she dropped the lawsuit. Um, but the Kent mayor, the Auburn mayors, um, federal way mayors, um, and you have to just continue to pressure them when you're at these rallies and you have them come there, you got to call them out. You have to be willing to step out there and be bold. Um, otherwise families will just continue to be waiting. Hmm. And then um, there's a question from Brooke L. Says, how do we get the ones who are consciously uh, living in the bubble during this time to hear and care more? Frustrating because many, uh, even if they are um, hashtag BLM now, I know many want this to go away or just to move on to something else. How do we get those who are not yet engaged? I don't know, Nikita, if you have a, a thought on that or or anybody. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to people in power, uh, you know, I think there's two options. One, if they don't want to get engaged, keep the pressure on them. I mean, like, I don't need them to agree. I just need them to have the political will or at least, the you know, to right. feel enough that they want to get us off their back. Right. Uh, I think you can also vote them out. You know, it's stop voting for these whack politicians, uh-huh. you know, uh, encourage people who are going to have a radical vision for society to run for office. Um, stop undercutting black, queer women, trans organizers and activists. You know, I had my own experience running for office and the number of times that I was compared to, you know, to be transparent, the white women I was running with who oftentimes were saying the exact same words I was saying. Um, and we're getting credit for it. Support, support getting radical voices in into leadership. Um, when it comes to our community members, honestly, if you consider yourself a radical white person who is down for the cause, go organize white people. Go talk to white people. Talk to your racist uncle. You know, talk to your friends at work. It, it is your it, undoing white supremacy is not the job of black 
and brown people. It is the job of white people. I don't benefit from this shit. And um, it is those who have the the privilege and the power to be doing the work. Go organize white folks. Um, have those hard conversations. Help politicize your family. Um, and I also think it's it, if you feel committed to this movement. Uh, don't throw other people under the bus for the way that they move. You know, something I really want folks to understand is that movements that we celebrate were only one because of a diversity of tactics. Uh, mm. We've heard a Thank lot you. of people criticize um, people who have broke windows or burnt cars because that's quote unquote a crime. Uh, however, let's not forget that economic disruption and property disruption has been a part of every effective movement at some level. Now, it's certainly not the easiest way to move. If you don't have the folks that are willing to push the limits on things and the people who sit at the table and are making negotiations for policy, don't have any leverage. And so we have to value each other. The only reason the only reason MLK got to sit at the table to sign civil rights legislation is because you had the Malcolm X's, you had the Asada Shakur's, you had the Angela Davis's, you had the Ella Baker's, you know, you had eventually the Stokely Carmichael's, you know, between the 1960s through the 1970s, you had a variety of ways that activists and advocates moved in the world. And because of those different ways of moving, it created the right energy to force the political structures that don't want to change on their own to change. You know, you don't ask your oppressor for freedom, you demand it. And if they don't give it when you demand it, you take it. And I understand that that kind of rhetoric makes people uncomfortable, but like how long do you expect black people to live with the knee of oppression on our necks? and not to at some point defend and protect ourselves. So I really think we have to get comfortable with the diversity of tactics. And one way that I see that happening, and I said this earlier in the live stream, is the only city talking about disbanding racist police is the only city that burnt down a police station. And that's not me advocating for that, but it is me pointing out that if there is not significant enough disruption in your area, whatever that disruption needs to look like. Maybe it looks like traffic stays on a standstill. Maybe it looks like a general strike. Maybe it looks like shutting down council chambers. Maybe it looks like a broken window. Whatever it is in your context, if there's not significant enough disruption for those who have investment in the system, they will not have significant enough reason to change it. And so we need that diversity of tactics. We need to protect and care for each other. We need to not throw each other under the bus. And I, I think the last thing I'll say is we need to align with the goals. No matter how you choose to move, no matter how your positionality allows you to move, do not undercut the mission, which is to eventually, in my opinion, defunding the police is just a step towards dismantling a racist institution. So don't undercut the mission. You may not believe the mission can happen right now, but if you undercut it right now, it'll never happen. So let's be committed to a shared vision and values in whatever way we can move from our area of positionality. Oh, you no, know, I'd also like to say, though, um, you know, if some people that are at those tables that others aren't at, I'm going to need for you to invite some of your friends to the table. 100. It's enough to just be at the table yourself. It's bigger than just you. Invite some other people in the community to the table. Because if we're not at the table, we are on the menu and it can't be about self. Woo. That's, that's it right there. That's it. That's it. Drop the mic. Yeah. 
I appreciate you all. I mean, this has been fantastic. I just want to urge people to go out to the rally tomorrow at 5 p.m. at Cal Anderson around getting the police out of the uh, King County Labor Council. And then Katrina, if you could talk about um, the vigil again, remind how to participate in that. And um, and we're going to uh, uh, have to wrap up. All right. So um, the vigil is Thursday at Magnuson Park, 6 p.m. We'll have a great program out there. There'll be families from all over the nation out there um, just to uplift um, Charlena's name, life and legacy, and also the the lives of other folks in Washington State who have lost their um, loved ones to police violence. Um, you can always donate um, to forcetrajectory.com backslash, uh, backslash uh, donate. Um, those are some of the ways you can, uh, donate and things like that. Um, families coming to town tomorrow. We'll have a nice little meet and greet and hang out and stuff like that. And I'll see you guys all on Thursday, pretty much. No doubt. Y'all, I can't tell you how healing this conversation was for me to, to be amongst friends and comrades and, and just to, to hear your words that are helping me envision this world that we're going to win. So I really appreciate all of you taking the time today. Jesse, I got one last thing. What's that? I need everybody listening to this live stream. I don't care what state you are in, what country. Call the mayors of all of those cities that I mentioned, including Seattle, and tell them to drop the lawsuit. Right there are 30 something families waiting to get answers into their loved ones who have been killed in Washington state. And we will get none unless they drop the lawsuits. And can I add to that to hit up Del Constantine and tell him to follow the law? There are two key laws here. One is the ability to subpoena officers to uh, have to testify in inquest proceedings. And the second is for the inquest jury to be able to make a determination around criminal means. You know, there is legal precedent for, you know, there are laws that actually say this should be able to happen in inquest. And part of the reason these lawsuits exist in the first place is the Department of Public Defense filed the lawsuit on behalf of families who were not going to get justice through the inquest process because Dow Constantine is literally blocking those two things are being able to happen during an inquest. And so uh, let's hold him accountable too. He He's the executive of our county. He could he could literally just say, this is how we're going to, fo- we're going to follow the law. <laughs> you know, that's what they want us to do, follow the law, right? right? But they don't follow the law when it actually serves justice. So, you know, as, as we do this, let's keep Dow, let's keep Dow in our emails, you know? Absolutely. Ah, no Dow, thank you all for spitting fire for real. Uh, this is going to keep me motivated. Uh, before we close, I want to remind people that if you're in a position to make a donation, how, however uh, big or small, please consider giving tonight. The donations, remember, go to Charlena's family and to Creative Justice. Um, and I want to thank again Haymarket Books for sponsoring this event and organizing the live stream. And I want to thank everyone around the country and around the world who tuned into this event. I hope you will take these ideas out into the streets with you, out into your your workplace with you, and and build this struggle uh, wherever you are. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel. 
where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.